Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. So if you want to, that's, ah, oh, glad to check. I'm sorry. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Okay. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearlings together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as, the, as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Uh, kids, if you like, we've got kids coming out with Katie and Annabelle uh, and junior youth as well with Nathan. Thanks, Melinda. We are hoping, yes, this is working, excellent. Just to, just to keep you awake. Um, morning, everybody. Uh, just, excuse me, I'll move a couple of things. I'll address the uh, elephant. I, I'm totally fine, I just injured my knee. No cool story to go with it. Um, old basketball injury that re-emerged. But um, before I get into Isaiah, I, just, I did want to take the opportunity, I guess, just to say a couple of things. Um, Obviously, it's been an interesting week in South Australia and there's a, you know, there's a bit of nervousness around and as we've said over the last few weeks, we want to keep, I guess, just being really upfront and honest and talking about the situation as it emerges and as these next few weeks and months unfold um, with our borders opening up and all that that means. I know there's been some anxiety around that and obviously there are some um, kind of re reaffirmation of the practices of how we can best look after ourselves and one another and our community. So a couple of things to say for us as a church, just to remember to wear masks um, and we um, actually are supposed to sit down when we're eating or drinking, those kind of things. Um, but also if you are sick, um, we'd really encourage you to stay home and join us on Zoom. And I know there's a few people on Zoom today, so hi, great to have you with us. Um, just so that we can do our best to kind of respond to what's being asked of us in our community, be responsible, keep to the guidelines that we have agreed to um, as part of meeting together. But there's also, I guess, um, as Josh has mentioned a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, kind of this, this challenge um, in our community at the moment with different views, particularly around vaccination. Um, and I think one of the things I've always loved about Richmond is we have this saying, which I haven't heard for a little while, but it's part of our, our language, which is embrace the awkward. Um, so I'm doing a bit of that this morning. I'm just embrace 
the awkward. We might need to embrace the awkward a bit more. Just in terms of how do we as a community move forward without buying into the kind of polarisation and the um, debate and anger that we see around us in our community. Um, and so we want to be a place that is welcoming, but we also want to be a place that is caring for our vulnerable. And as you know, we have a lot of particularly very young babies. We're just like on a roll at the moment, aren't we? They just keep coming along every couple of months. Um, and lots of young kids, obviously, who aren't vaccinated. And so it might mean, um, you know, embracing the awkward of actually asking their parents if it's okay to play with them or to, you know, to hold them or actually respecting if people say, look, no, we're actually just being a bit more cautious. Those kind of things, like how do we just do this well um, and name and own, own that this is a really difficult situation and circumstance, but we want to love one another well. So I wanted to say that. But the other thing I wanted to do was actually pray this morning. I don't know if you heard on the news last night, but um, a couple of remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory went into lockdown last night uh, in um, uh, Alajamani and Kakaringi. And both of those are communities that we have a Baptist church, so a church that's a member of our family of churches. Um, and we know that um, in our remote communities, Aboriginal people have much more complex health needs and health issues and much lower rates of vaccination and there's always been this fear of what it means for COVID to get into those communities. And so I wanted to pray this morning particularly for them and um, I'm thinking of, you know, there's um, Annie Lynette and Uncle Eddie who are like the leaders of those churches and, you know, like I'm thinking we're having this awkward conversation about how we're managing it. I can't imagine what it's like for them at the moment. Um, so I wanted to take an opportunity to pray for the whole situation but particularly for our brothers and sisters in those communities in um, the Territory. So would you pray with me. God, we thank you that you are our King, Jesus, and that you hold the whole world in your hands and there's nothing that escapes your notice. And we come to you again, as we have many times over the last two years, conscious that we're living in a really unusual time, that um, there is uh, so much uncertainty and anxiety as we face what this pandemic looks like, as new variants emerge, as governments around the world try to respond well to it, as we disagree on the best paths forward. God, we thank you that in all that, we can look to you and we can cry out to you to help us, to guide us, to protect us and to provide for us. And so we want to pray for our community as a whole, that you would give wisdom to those who are making decisions, that you would give compassion and generosity to all of us as we live together um, in this situation. We pray for our church that we might embrace the awkward and love one another well and protect and care for those who are vulnerable amongst us really well. And this morning, God, we do want to bring before you those remote communities in the Northern Territory. Um, particularly, we do think of our brothers and sisters in those churches as they seek to love one another and to love and serve their communities in a time of real fear and uncertainty about what this looks like. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would provide the um, resources that they need that are so hard for them to get even in the best of times um, to provide health care for those who are unwell. We pray that the measures that are being taken would be successful and that you would, um, yeah, actually protect them from an outbreak that would spread and have really bad consequences for those who are very unwell. Um, and we want to bring before you um, some of the people that, that I know and that are part of our family, like Annie Lynette and Uncle Eddie and some of the other leaders of those communities. We pray for them, that you would give them 
compassion, generosity and wisdom um, and most of all that you would give them complete and utter trust in you King Jesus so that even in the midst of their practical response they might still be um, honouring you and pointing people to you and seeing your love um, shown to those communities. So we commit them to you and we long for you to step in and be at work there as you are in many other places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as Caitlin mentioned, we are starting our Advent series this week, and I don't know about you, but I really haven't thought about Christmas yet. It feels like it was a long way away, and there's been so much else going on, and all of a sudden, it's four weeks, and it's happening. Um, And Advent is this season on the Christian calendar that churches all around the world and churches throughout history have celebrated, which really is about counting down and preparing, which is kind of helpful when you're feeling unprepared and unready to have these four weeks to say, oh, let's get ready for Christmas. But again, I don't know about you, when that thought crosses my mind in every other sphere of life, let's get ready for Christmas makes me think about things like buying presents, uh, organising food, organising dates and timetables and calendars and who I'll be meeting when. Advent is actually about counting down, preparing and looking forward to welcoming King Jesus into our midst, what Christmas is actually all about. Um, So Advent is this season of expectancy, of anticipation, of waiting and longing. And in the Christian tradition, it has these really two really interesting elements that go together. It's both sort of going back and putting ourselves in the story of Christmas and trying to imagine the longing that the people of God had for hundreds of years as they waited for God to come, as they waited for the promised Messiah, as they waited for how God was going to step in to our world. And so it's part of sitting in the Christmas story is to sit in that longing and expectation and hope that builds up over many, many generations and centuries. Now, obviously, we know the end of the story. And on Christmas Day, we celebrate that Jesus is born and we can move on. But, and, but there's something about kind of the way that the, the calendar works of putting ourselves into the different parts of the story that really helps us understand, celebrate and appreciate it. But more than that, because of the way that the story works, we're also invited to sit in the longing and anticipation and hope that Jesus is coming again. So as we anticipate his first coming in his birth, we also anticipate his second coming, his return to once and for all judge and set right all the world, all the things. And so there's this kind of dual aspect of both sitting in the longing of the past and sitting in our own longing. When I talk about a season of longing and expectancy and waiting, it's not all maybe as gentle as those words make it sound. (laughs) It can be quite a confronting and provocative time Uh, One of the classic uh, phrases from the Old Testament prophets, in fact, from Isaiah, who we're going to be looking at, that's used in Advent season, is, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, that you would just make a way and that the mountains would tremble and the whole earth would shake to its foundations and you would deal with the mess that this world is. And that seems reasonably appropriate this year in particular. (laughs) as we recognise the complexities and the challenges and the uncertainties of our world, as we as a church sit in a season of uncertainty and complexity and longing, that we would ask God to step in, that we would long for and hope for him to do so. And so when it comes to Advent, I think one of the appropriate places to go to sit in both the longing and to cry out for the stepping in of God is the Old Testament prophets. 
because that is a lot of what they were on about. Their role was both to point people forwards and to ask what's next and to call people into what God is doing now. They were not just predictors of the future, although they did point forwards. They spoke on behalf of God, pointing to and preparing God's people for what he is bringing about. And they were sometimes confronting, often lamenting, always hopeful as they pointed God's people forward to what he was doing. And for those of you who were around last year, we actually sat in one of the other Old Testament prophets um, in Jeremiah. We did a series called Restoring the Darkness. Uh, and I think what we're going to be looking at in Isaiah will probably have some similar themes, some resonances with that, which we found as a really helpful series. It was it's funny looking back, isn't it? It was as we, we thought at the time we were emerging from COVID um, in that middle of last year when we had that time online and then we were coming back in person. And we really found Jeremiah's um, restoring of the darkness, naming the realities of talent how difficult things are, but looking forward with hope, really helpful. And so I'm praying and trusting these next four weeks of sitting with Isaiah um, will also be helpful. So my job today is, is to get to hope, but I want to set the scene for the next four weeks a little bit about Isaiah and his, his book. Um, the scene for Isaiah's ministry it takes place in around about the 7th century BC, so 706 to 700 years before Jesus is born. So there's a lot of longing still to come after Isaiah, and he sets people up for a lot of longing and anticipation. But the kingdoms um, of Israel have been split in two for about 400 years, and the northern kingdom has been defeated, destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians are the largest superpower the world has ever known and the most brutal. And they have marched through and destroyed many nations, including 10 of the 12 tribes of the people of God in the northern kingdom. And so we're left with the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah centered around the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah's lifespan covers this really interesting period where there's a bit of a roller coaster of what is happening. They've seen the Assyrians defeat the north, and so they end up becoming part of a coalition that, that basically um, decides to form a treaty and submit to the Assyrian Empire so that they don't get wiped out, right? So the way you don't get wiped out is you essentially buy them off, you become a subject to them. Um, but then later, they then, during Isaiah's lifetime, they join a coalition who decide, no, we don't like that anymore, we're going to rebel. And they rebel against the Assyrian Empire. And so then their new leader of the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, um, retaliates by coming back down and destroying pretty much every city in the land of Judah except Jerusalem. So the capital is saved, but every other city is razed to the ground. And it's a, a humiliating defeat, and it's kind of in the lead-up towards um, the eventual exile of God's people. So there's this roller coaster of what's happening politically and socially, and into that, God calls Isaiah to speak. And Isaiah's first role is to advise the king, <laughs> to give wisdom and counsel to the king as to what he should do. Uh, one of the things I love about Isaiah is uh, his message is always what God has to say for the time. So his message changes actually throughout the book depending on the circumstances. But one thing that's pretty true, the kings never listen. It doesn't matter what he says. The times he's saying, look, actually, now is not the time to rebel against the evil empire. And the king's like, nah, seems like a pretty good time to rebel. And then later, Isaiah's saying, actually, God does want you to rise up. And they no, no, we're good now. We're just going to submit. Like, seriously? Does no one listen to the word of God? So his message is into the realities of complexity, messiness, darkness, war, uncertainty, angst, and evil. It's a message of listening, of being prepared and being watchful, but also of acting in light of what you hear. Isaiah's book has sometimes been called the fifth gospel or the gospel of the Old Testament because into such 
a complex and difficult situation, Isaiah speaks the most amazing words about the purpose and character of God. That God is actually doing something far bigger than these people had expected. That it's not just about what's going on in their country or their city or their neighborhood, but God actually has a plan for the whole world, the whole of creation, for all people. God is doing something so much bigger than they could ever have dreamed of. Isaiah is probably most known for some of his famous promises about the Messiah, the one who will come and be born of a virgin, who will be a son of David, who will be born to reign, whose God's spirit will be poured out upon, who will suffer on behalf of God's people. Promise after promise after promise of what God is going to do and this, this one that God is going to send. But it's more than just a book made up of, if you like, individual promises or proof texts that we now look back and go, oh, that was talking about Jesus, that was talking about Jesus, which of course it was. And we can see how all those promises are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus at Christmas, in the, the entering of Jesus into our world. But the whole message of Isaiah is about the big picture of what God is going to do in and through Jesus, both in his coming into the world in the first century and in his return that we are still looking forward to. So over the next four weeks, we want to ask, how is God speaking to us today as we see how Jesus is the one who brings about what God promised through Isaiah, how we can participate in Jesus working this out now in our time and place, and how can we be a people who are expectant and looking forward to the return when he will once and for all fulfill all these promises. So we're going to use the four key themes of Advent over the next four weeks, which are hope, peace, joy, and love, um, to unpack what Isaiah is talking about. So Caitlin read to us uh, this passage from Isaiah chapter 11, which is this beautiful vision or song of hope. It's a song that kind of ends the first section of Isaiah's prophecies and brings them to a close. And it's a vision that in its immediate context sees an end to the current crisis that the people of God find themselves in. Now actually, that current crisis won't end for generations after Isaiah's life. So the message is one that's, that's kind of given now for them to long for and look forward to, and yet they still have to deal with the reality and the mess. Because it's a promise that extends far beyond their immediate needs to a far greater hope for all nations. Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you're not an Old Testament Israelite and you haven't been sitting in the Old Testament prophets, that's a fairly obscure phrase. So let me unpack that for a second. Jesse, uh, Jesse was a real person who lived. He was the father of King David. And so we're talking about David's family line. But here Isaiah calls that family line a stump. And that's a pretty vivid image, yes, of something that really got nothing much to show for it. It's been cut down. It's been cut off. It's, you know, you see a, a big tree that's just cut down to a stump and you think, well, okay, there used to be something there. Uh, there's nothing good that's going to come of that probably in the future. And that was what it would have felt like in Isaiah's time when you had these kings of the line of David who are, you know, going off and submitting to foreign empires, getting themselves killed in battle and leading the people astray. This big promise of God that he would do something through the family line of Jesse, through King David, seems to have all come to naught. And Isaiah's promise is that from that stump, from that dead piece of wood, a brand new shoot is going to emerge. And I love that picture. I'm not a super visual person, but I love that picture of like this big massive tree stump that's just dead and this little piece that's just growing up, this little green shoot just making its way out, emerging, saying something new is going to come forward, something unexpected, something different. And from that, 
a branch will bear fruit. Now, I wonder if the people of Isaiah's day took this prophecy seriously. Maybe they would have realised it was going to take a few generations because a little shoot from a stump to bearing fruit is probably going to take a while. But there is hope in that picture. There is hope that God is not done. God is not finished even though everything looks like it. There is a fulfilment yet to come. And then this amazing passage in Isaiah, which finds echoes in many other places of the book of Isaiah, um, of what that little shoot will look like. And it will be a person. And that person will have the spirit of the Lord resting on them, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Someone who will come and bring God's wisdom, understanding, advice and knowledge into the world. Again, in Isaiah's day, this is exactly what they need. The king needs some advice, God's advice, from the spirit of wisdom and understanding that can discern what's going on in the world and know how to respond and react in the right time. But more than that, the world needs the wisdom, understanding, counsel and knowledge of God. And of course, Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, the very first message he preaches after his baptism, he stands up and he reads from Isaiah, actually not this passage, 61, but it's almost identical. And he says, this is me. This person that you've been looking for, the one who will come and bring the wisdom and counsel and knowledge and understanding and advice of God into the world, here I am, King Jesus. So what Isaiah is promising is not an idea or a philosophy or a way of making sense of the world but a person. And in that person will be the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God. I find that really challenging to think about putting into practice. Because when I think about some of the complexities in my own life, in our world at the moment, in our church at the moment, it's easy to come up with ideas and plans and strategies and wisdom to make sense of it. And the promise of the scriptures is that we don't look for ideas and strategies. We look to a person, King Jesus, and he is the wisdom of God. He is the knowledge of God. He is the counsel and understanding and might and advice that we need. It's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to spending some time this week praying together because it's really easy for us to talk and come up with our own ideas, but to listen and seek King Jesus himself is actually the most important and most helpful thing we can do. So Jesus himself is the one who is promised in Isaiah 11. And then we get this incredible picture of what it will look like when Jesus comes. A picture of justice and righteousness. A picture of restoration and reconciliation. Now, it doesn't all come smoothly and gently. We'll get to the nice fluffy bits towards the end. But it talks about justice for the poor, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, slaying the wicked. In order for there to be justice and righteousness, then what is evil and wicked must be dealt with. And there will be confrontation and judgment as part of Jesus entering into the world. And we see this in his coming. Jesus said to his disciples, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Jesus divides people, he confronts people, he judges people. There's a lot of people who are very unhappy with Jesus when he comes to the point that they actually try and eventually succeed in killing him and getting rid of him. 
So Jesus comes to bring this wisdom and advice and knowledge and understanding, but it comes in an unexpected, in a provocative and a confrontational way, and yet somehow through that, there is this incredible picture of restoration and reconciliation. Kind of amusing for me preaching on this passage today with all these animals that are going to live together because I went to Manato yesterday and so I was trying to imagine as I'm looking at the lions feeding on their meat, I've got in my mind this picture of lions laying down with lambs and eating straw and oh my goodness, that is not the way they act. Those are some fierce and scary and majestic creatures. And the idea that God would take even the most wild and uncontrolled and confronting aspects of our world, these animals that we see tearing one another apart and enable peace and right relationship and restoration is the great hope of this passage, a hope that is beyond just us but is for the whole world. I think by, by using the animals, you know, Isaiah is trying to make a point. It's, it's metaphorical but it's also, I think, has elements of, you know, literal truth as well but it's, it paints this picture in our minds of, wow, if that could happen... If that could happen, anything's possible. This is a picture far beyond what I had expected. This is just not me and my friend getting along. This is actually not just one nation and another nation signing a treaty of peace. This is a fundamental change to the order of how the world works, where there is restoration and reconciliation, righteous and just, righteousness and justice once and for all. And so Isaiah's prophecy is of a great hope, found in this shoot from the stump of Jesse, who will bring in practice the restoration and reordering of all of creation. So for the people of Isaiah's day, what does that mean? In their immediate context, there's actually some hope in the current situation. The beginning of Isaiah where this passage is found, uh, the king has actually just died because he's got himself involved in these political intrigues and, he, and you know, making treaties with the wrong people and he's actually just been assassinated and his young son is going to come to the throne and be the next king of Israel, of Judah, sorry, and his name is Josiah. I don't know if you know the story of Josiah, but Josiah who becomes king as a young boy has this amazing discovery uh, as a young man of this book that had been lost. I think it's probably the book of Deuteronomy or at least parts of it, so it's the scriptures the, the word of God is rediscovered and he actually starts to reform and bring about restoration in Israel in a really practical way. He brings justice, he puts an end to corruption, he puts an end to the worship of idols and the sacrificing of children and all these terrible practices that have been happening. And so there's a sense in which this is fulfilled in the immediate for the people of Isaiah's day and they are called to respond to and get involved and be a part of this restoration of getting rid of the things that are harmful and embracing and entering into the things that are right. And yet, Josiah is a wonderful leader and he leads the people back towards God and yet there are things that even he can't do and the nations around them continue to rage and eventually at the end of his life, Josiah himself is killed by getting involved in a battle between two other nations, Egypt and um, Babylon, that he had kind of no business being involved in in the first place. And, and this hope, if that was it, if that was the end of the story that Isaiah was just saying, you know, well, look to what's happening right now, then this hope and these promises would ultimately be frustrated. And yet the people of Isaiah's day know that this goes beyond just their current king to this one who will come 
who will be the true shoot of the stump of Jesse, who will actually fulfill these promises and who will have the spirit rest on him in a new way, in a way beyond their understanding. And they long for it and they never see it. And generation after generation waits and waits and waits for the Messiah to come. What about for us? What does it look like for us to take these words seriously in our situation? I wonder if, like the people in Isaiah's day, there's both an immediate and a future-looking aspect to our hope. Now, our immediate is far better than their immediate because we're not looking to a, a human king who's the political leader who's going to try and solve the world's problems. We actually have King Jesus himself. The promised Messiah has already come. And so what they longed for, what they were waiting and hoping and trusting and looking forward to, we live in the reality of now. And there is hope for us in our situation in the person of King Jesus, in the restoration that he has already brought about and that he is even now bringing about that we can be a part of. I'm not talking to minute about what that might look like really practically. And yet... There is also for us a future dimension to this hope, a forward-looking, because we know, even though, as we sang this morning, Jesus Christ is our living hope, he has been raised to new life, he has conquered death and achieved the ultimate victory, we still live in this messy, broken, fallen world with all its complexity and darkness, and we are still longing for him to return and bring these prophecies to fulfilment once and for all, ultimately. There were no lions laying down with lambs at Monado yesterday. There is no restoration between the nations of the world. There is no end to disease and death today. But there is a hope that one day all those things will be our experience forever and ever what does it look like to live as a people of hope in both of those ways at the same time? A people who have hope now, who say that we, we do have something to offer, something better than the wisdom and advice and counsel of the leaders and governments of our day, a person who is real, who we have a relationship with, who we are community-centred around, who has something to say and leads us in a different way to live here and now. And yet we're also pointing forward to when he will come and set things right once and for all. I think Josh actually mentioned this last week, this idea of a liminal space. Um, and really being a Christian is, is being in a liminal space or is sitting in a tension of a now and not yet, of having a message of hope to give to our world that is good and can make a huge difference and yet is not everything because we are still waiting and longing and looking forward to what Jesus is going to do. So what does it look like for you personally, for us as a church and for us in our world today to practically live as people of hope? People who have hope that there is a different way as followers of King Jesus of living in our current situation and people who have hope that there is a future restoration coming that will be the ultimate once and for all for everyone. I was thinking about the places that spring to mind for me when I think about where I've seen hope in practice. And all the things that came to mind were some of the darkest places I've ever been. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it, that hope seems to be most visible 
in the most difficult and darkest of places. Is that just me or is that that's actually other people's experience as well? So I think about um, going to Cambodia and visiting Tulsleng, which was the, the, the prison, the place where people were kept you know, under the Pol Pot's regime. Like this is just this terrible place of torture and death. And yet seeing these little flowers growing up in the garden there against the grey walls and seeing people starting to make the beginnings of reconciliation and restoration in a place that has just been, you know, a place of, of genocide and death and destruction. Or I remember got to going to a village in Zambia, Mwandi, where there was actually a project called the Hope Project for children whose parents had died of HIV AIDS. Children who were getting a hot meal every day so that they could um, you know, have enough strength and energy to then go to school and were getting educated and were looking to having a different future than what their parents had. Or I think of visiting some of our remote Aboriginal communities. The church in Yundamui, um, the one that we've talked about a few times in this church, uh, also Walpree, like the church as I mentioned earlier uh, this morning, because of the artist that I met there, Clarice Paulson, whose artwork we have out in our church and we've done a whole sermon series on, on her picture of hope and restoration that comes out of the, the brokenness and oppression and injustice of those people, of what my people have done to her people over the last 200 years. And so it seems appropriate to me, <laughs> to me, if I'm honest, in, in a time in my life at least, and I don't want to compare it to you know, some of those great injustices of history, but certainly in my life, a time of, of the most uncertainty and darkness that I've probably been in, a time when we seem to be just having this never-ending kind, we think it's getting better and then there's another variant and there's another question and there's no new restrictions and opening up and we don't know what it looks like to live through this pandemic. A time for us as a church, certainly not the darkest. I wasn't here many years ago when this church was really small and wondering what did its future hold. But in the last few years, a time of uncertainty, a time of we don't know what's next. We've just been told that our building is going to be taken off us. We're looking for a pastor. We don't know. It feels a little less you know, stable, a little more fragile than it did a few months ago. Um, and to be honest, I haven't really shared this much personally. For me personally, my own family, um, you know, a time that's been pretty difficult. Um, so you know my stepfather passed away this year and I haven't been able to see my family since that. My mum's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You know, it's, it's really tough. And yet, that's where hope shines the brightest. That's where the reality of being a people of hope who say there is a different way and I don't have to get caught up in, in seeing it and entering into kind of the same way of responding to this that I see as the wisdom and advice and counsel that everyone else has. Not that I should reject that because surely there's, there's great, you know, like great public health advice and there's great people who understand science far better than I do and I want to respect all that. But ultimately... As we're trying to do as a church, we want to find a different way and say, we are the people of King Jesus. Jesus is here. He is the one that we look to, to show us how to get through this. And to live as a people of hope who say, whatever happens, this is not the end. Death is not the end. Disease is not the end. This world is going to be restored because Jesus is coming back to put all things right. So I don't know what you're sitting in today. I don't know what resonates for you in terms of what's going on in the world, what's going on in our church, and I'm sure what's going on in your own life that we only know a tiny glimpse of. But as we enter into this Christmas season, my encouragement to you today is don't just prepare for Christmas. Don't just prepare the food and the presents and the get-togethers. 
Prepare your heart, the scriptures would say. Prepare your hands. Prepare your whole self as a person who is hopeful. A person who finds hope day by day in seeing King Jesus in the midst of every situation. And a person who has an ultimate hope that he is coming back to set all things right. So let me pray. King Jesus, you are the shoot from the stump of Jesse. The light in the darkness. The one who has entered into our world to bring a new way of being, a new way of seeing and understanding, to bring a new way of community and life together. And it's all centred around you, King Jesus. And we pray that we might be a people who find our hope, first, foremost, last and always, in you. That you would show us how to respond well to the times we find ourselves in how to talk to each other well, how to engage with our society well, how to make plans and, and, um, and preparations for the future well with hope based on you being who you are always, yesterday, today and forever. And we pray that we might be a people who are expectant and longing for your return to come and set all things right. There is a place in Jesus for us to lament. <laughs> and to name the darkness and the frustration, the sadness and the brokenness we experience, and to say, come, set it right. Rend the heavens and enter in. As we celebrate your coming this Christmas, may it be a time of great joy and hope and peace and love, but may it also be a time that leads us to crying out for you to enter in again into every moment, every day, every situation, and to come back and enter in once and for all and renew all the things. And we ask this in your name. Amen.